and turn in your Bibles this morning. We are actually, believe it or not, we are going to be, if you're new to Cornerstone, we study the word verse by verse. Um, so we pick a book of the Bible, we start at the beginning, we finish it. We are going to be going into, we're going to be starting the book of Philippians, okay? But we're not reading any of Philippians today. <laughs> but instead, I was really praying about it, and I'm like, why, why dive into the book of Philippians? You know, it's a, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Why dive right into that before we read in the book of Acts chapter 16 how the church of Philippi was established, right? We, we read about the, you know, the church of Philippi being born, and I would believe that by going through Acts chapter 16, reading about the church of Philippi, we would gain a greater understanding for the letter um, written from Paul to the church at Philippians. Amen? Does that make sense? So this morning, we're going to start in Acts chapter 16, and we're going to read about how the church at Philippi started, and we're going to pick things up in verse 6 of Acts chapter 16. Bear with me as I mispronounce every city in here. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So he's talking about Paul and Silas, the Apostle Paul and Silas. They are currently on their second missionary journey. Okay, so if you want to know where we're at in the timeline, they are currently starting their second missionary journey. And when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by in Messiah, they went down to Troas. So if you want to throw up a map for me real quick, Angela, if you're curious about their second missionary journey, here's the whole route they took on their second missionary journey. They don't think Asia, you know, as the Asia you know today, that's Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey, okay? And so as they began their missionary journey, okay, they're, pro they're going into Asia there, the Asia Minor, and you can see all the prominent cities are in the southwest part of Asia. And one of Paul's strategies is he would go, and when he went into a region, he would go to the most prominent cities, and he would preach the gospel. And what he did is he, and then from there, those prominent cities, he would let them spread the gospel and plant churches outside of that area. So Paul, standard operation, he wants to go into Asia, he wants to go into Southwest Asia, where the prominent cities are. Ouch. Lord, it forbid me from saying my next sentence. Uh, if it happens one more time, I'll go to the mic, okay? I hate using a mic. Um, gosh. <laughs> Check. All right, my point is, is he wants to go into, that's generally his plan, but the Lord redirects him. He goes up into, into northern Asia. It's very mountainous up there. It's a harder path to travel. It doesn't make any sense, according to the logic of mankind, to take that route, but that's where the Lord tells him to go. And so have you ever been there in your life where you've got a plan? You've got a plan that makes sense on paper, right? You've got a plan that makes sense to the logic of mankind, but then all of a sudden, the Lord redirects you, right? 
Have you ever been? Has, have you ever used a GPS? And it's one of the most annoying things to me is when I'm using a GPS, I'm on my way, and all of a sudden I hear recalculating your route. And you're like, are you serious, man? I already started my route. Like, don't recalculate it, right? And yet sometimes the Lord recalculates our routes. And you know what? His perspective is better than our perspective. So we can be okay with that. Yeah, it's not. sometimes it doesn't make sense just at the time. And, and it won't always. But he recalculates our route, and we got to be okay with that. He forbid him from going there. Um, and then in verse 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's probably a good conclusion when God gives you a vision like that. And the first place they're going to arrive in Macedonia is Philippi, which is the church of the, of the Philippians. Okay, that's where we're going to be going after this. That's the first place they're going to arrive in Macedonia. Um, a couple things here. Notice the pronoun change. The pronoun change in verses 6 through 9 and then verse 10. So in verse 6, they went through the region, verse 7, and when they had come, and then in verse 10, it changes from they to, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. You have to understand the author of the book of, of Acts is Luke, um, who wrote the gospel of Luke. He also wrote Acts. And so evidently at this point, Luke joins them on their missionary journey. So Luke wasn't with them, and then he became with them. And Luke, if you know anything about Luke, he, what's his occupation? He's a doctor. He's a physician. Okay, so there is, this is just pure speculation. I'll call it sanctified speculation now. Um, but we don't know for sure. But, but there are those who speculate that, with that one of the ways that God told Paul not to go into Southwest Asia Minor is through an illness, through getting sick. And, and, and they, they speculate that because, A, Luke is introduced and he's a physician and that's how they got connected and also in Paul's other epistles, he's t he talks about getting sick and it preventing him from going places. But he doesn't specifically name Philippi. We don't know for sure. But it's just an interesting thing. Either way, what we do know is that Luke joins them because we see that pronoun shift there. And then in verse 11, it says, So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, something like that, and... Um, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, okay? So now we're going to read about what happens at Philippi before we dive into the letters of Philippians, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So normally, I wouldn't say normally, but very typically, <laughs> Um, when God gives a vision in Scripture, right? Hey, go here, go there. They go there, and they're introduced to the person that God gave them the vision of, right? God gives him this, this, this vision of this man pleading with him, like with urgency, right? Some translations say, say urgent. Some say pleading, and, and he gets there, and then nothing happens, right? It says for some days. We don't know how many days that is, but for some days, nothing happens. I think it's a good lesson, right? Sometimes God calls us to do something, and we think it might be immediate, especially when you get a vision like he got. But then you get there, and you're like, okay, what do you want me to do, Lord? 
Oh, be patient. There's other places in Scripture where it's not just some days. Sometimes it's weeks. Sometimes it's years. Doesn't mean God brought you there for nothing. Just means we've got to be patient to see what he wants to do with our lives. And so he gets there, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. Why did they suppose there was a place of prayer? So when in a city that didn't have a synagogue, and this apparently Philippi does not have a synagogue, which tells us a couple things. There's a very low Jewish population there. Um, the general rule wasn't always followed. But the general rule was if there was 10 Jewish men or more, they'd build, build a synagogue. We don't know for sure how many were in the place or if they got along, a lot of dynamics. But there wasn't a synagogue there. And so the Jews taught if there wasn't a synagogue, then you would go to a river to, on the Sabbath. And that's where you'd have service, right? How many, do we go to a river every year, right? Isn't it amazing? What, what a great thing. You know, river in scripture represents the Holy Spirit. It's living, it's fluid, it's active. You know, sometimes, do you, do you ever let nature teach you, <laughs> right? How, how many of you guys float the river every year? Right? Uh, all right. I want, that, I want that to be increased next year, okay? No, church float. Oh, that'd be fun. But I want you to know, you know, in, the, in Scripture, you know, a symbol of the Holy Spirit is the river. Next time you're on the river, think about that, right? God will use it. God, God will teach you through that. Um, so he goes to the river, and, and there's a woman there who had come together to pray. And it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of, of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So you have this woman, Lydia. She's a seller of purple goods. And what that meant was that she was prob probably wealthy. Because if you had purple goods back then, you were a wealthy person. It became the, purple was the color of royalty, at least a certain, a certain shade of purple was. And the reason was that was because really the only way they could ha develop this p shade of purple was to use the mucus of a murex snail, okay? That's what they did. They used the mucus of a murex snail, and it took a lot of, and, and it's a shellfish, just so you know, it's not an actual snail. But it took a lot of them to dye something this special color of purple. And it was an art. Like it took, it, it, was, it was hard to do. And so what that did is that became the color of royalty. So if you wore that shade of purple, you had money, right? You were very wealthy. And she was a seller of purple goods. So she, she probably was a wealthy woman. But most importantly, she was a worshiper of God. You know, and that tells me, you know, what that communicates to me is even though she doesn't know Jesus at this point, right? She had a sincere seeking heart to know God. You know, and it's my, it's my belief, you know, when I, when I read through the scriptures and I see people who are sincerely seeking God, right? You know, you can, sure, you can get into the debate on, on why they're seeking God. Did God already call them to do that? Or is it on their own free will? All of that. But at the end of the day, when somebody is sincerely seeking God, God meets them. You know, whether he has to send Peter 200 miles away, God meets him. And, 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 and here she is sincerely seeking God, and it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, 
Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. What I love about Lydia is she's influential. She's a great salesperson. It's probably why she was so good at, you know, selling purple goods, right? Notice what she says, right? She doesn't say, come to my house. If you guys want to come over, come, come over to my house and I'll welcome you, right? No, she says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, then come to my house and stay. That's called the presumptive sale, right? If I go to your house and I try to sell you candy bars, and I, after I give my pitch to you, the last thing I want to say is, do you want a candy bar? No, I say, which candy bar would you like, right? I presume, I love the, pres I just love the presumptive sell there, right? Like, if you say no to me, you're not judging me to be faithful. And I love the words he uses, like, like she won. And she prevailed upon us. I love that about Lydia. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So you have the slave girl who, you know, it's kind of a double whammy. Not only was she a slave to man, but she was a slave to the devil, right? She was uh, under demonic influence. She was fortune telling, and, um, and that can happen. And I think you have to be careful. You know, sometimes when we see supernatural things, I think we have to recognize that they're not all from God, right? You know, you can see supernatural things that are not from God. God allows that to happen through the demonic realm. When we look at, you know, fortune telling, when you look at horoscopes, when you look at, you can get in all kinds of things, UFOs, right? Are you going to try to tell me UFOs don't exist? Have you seen the evidence out there, right? Sorry, that's a rant I probably shouldn't get into, but... <laughs> Probably not a good idea for me to start talking about UFOs. But my point is, is not, is, is things do exist like that, but not necessarily from God, right? Um, that's a whole nother thing. So let's go to verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So her assessment, the interesting thing is, is her assessment and her message is perfectly accurate. It's the right message. It's, it's a good message, but it's a bad messenger. And God's not only concerned with the message, but also the messenger, right? I don't know why she, I don't know why she was preaching a good message. I don't know if maybe, maybe there were plans in the, in the, under demonic influence to use that message down the road, distort it, whatever. I don't know, you know, if God just commanded them to follow them and, and say these things. I don't know I don't know the details. They're not there. I don't have to know. But God is also concerned with the messenger, right? How many people preach the gospel, preach on television, and they have a good message, but they're not a good messenger, right? That, that's out there. Um, and, and it says, And this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. And, and, and I personally think that's a bad translation. So when you look at that Greek word annoyed, it can also be translated, and some translations translate it, grieved. And it could mean deeply grieved. In my mind, maybe I'm wrong, um, but I think Paul was grieved. I don't think it's annoyed as in he turns to her and he's just, you know, super mad and annoyed of her. I think he's deeply grieved by what's going on here. And he turned and said to the spirit, and, and notice the problem is not with the girl. The problem is with the spirit. And he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So 
Did these guys have a problem with the message before it affect their pocketbook? No, right? But the minute this message, the minute what they're doing, it starts affecting their income, their pocketbook, they seize them, they grab them, and they drag them before the rulers of the city. Does that remind you of a world that we live in, right? People can be okay with all kinds of things. Then all of a sudden it starts affecting their bottom line, and it's not okay anymore. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. So they turned to race, okay? These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. And they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So instead of talking about the real problem, which was what? Their prophets, they turn it into something else. They're not honest with the accusations. They're Jews, and they're not, you know, they're not doing what we Romans accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So you have to understand, now there is a mob beating the crap out of these guys. Okay, this is like life or death in these types of situations. Who knows? You know, there's, you don't control that type of escalation. And eventually the rulers get to them and they tear off their clothes and they command that they're beaten with rods. This is the third time in Paul's ministry. The third time in Paul's ministry, a man who was this, you know, he was in the top 70 most powerful people in Israel, right? He had tons of wealth, tons of power. And he left that to share the gospel and to receive this, the third time in his ministry that he's been beaten with rods. He was a man that it didn't take very long in his life. If you were to take off his shirt, you'd think he was a POW or something along those lines. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here, they've been beaten by a crowd. They've been beaten by rods. Their feet are in stocks in a first century prison. Okay? I don't know if it gets more uncomfortable than that. And what's their response? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Do you, ever, do you guys ever need an attitude adjustment? <laughs> I do. I read this stuff and I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I was murmuring against the Lord, right? For these things, when these guys just got a whooping of their lifetime and at midnight they're praying and singing to the Lord. You, know, you think, what, what are they praying about? What are they thanking the Lord for? You know, I don't know if it is, but I think the primary thing is they're probably openly and audibly thanking God for the deliverance of that girl, right? That was following them. You know, I mean, that, they probably think to themselves, you know, if, if it took me getting beaten by rods in this crowd for that girl to be delivered... Beat me again, right? That was Paul's attitude. He was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to do that. They're probably praising the Lord that they were simply used by God. They didn't cast out that demon. God cast out the demon, right? God just used them, and it's a privilege to be used by God. They're probably praising God for the fact that, you know, you know the crazy thing is what's, what's full, what's, designed to be against God is always used for him, right? 
It was designed, you, they, they weren't thinking about spreading the gospel when they made this big public event and ruckus out of all of this. But the fact that they got the entire city involved gave more glory to God. Because now you know what the whole town's talking about? Them and the deliverance of that girl that everybody saw. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So you have Paul and Silas. This is the first time in the New Testament that anyone is recorded singing. This could be the first concert and they bring the house down. Get it? That's a good joke. Get it? First concert, earthquake! Sorry. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why was he about to kill himself? Because during that time, if you were a Roman guard and, and you let people escape, the punishment that was upon them was upon you. So if they were going to be in prison, you were thrown in prison. If they were going to be sentenced to death, you were sentenced to death. That's how seriously they took guarding prisoners. So it's dark. He doesn't know where everybody's at. He just sees the doors open. And his assumption is what? They're all gone, right? So he's like, all right, I'm going to get this over with. I'm going to kill myself. Supposing that the prisoners that had escaped, Paul cried out with a loud voice, look how the tables have turned, sucker. Kill yourself, right? Or, or you know, look, you, you just got done beating me. Now you're about to die, sucker, right? Did he say any of that? No. It would be very easy to be tempted by that, right? You just got the snot beaten out of you. Be very tempted to be like, my God wins. Sorry. But that's not Paul's heart. It's the heart of the gospel. What does he say? He says, do not harm yourself, for we all are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. It's very simple. It's a very beautiful scene there, right? He, he, he feels the grace of God. He felt the earthquake. He, he, he's like, okay, this is real. What must I do to be saved? Very simple. Very simple. Don't make it, don't make it more complicated than it is. What must, you be to, what must you do to be saved? Well, you believe in the Lord Jesus and the fact that he died for your sins. You know, I wish I could tell you, these last three weeks I was gone have been, have been in a very interesting spiritual journey for me, to say the least. But I think I've learned more about God's grace in, in these last three weeks than I have in a very long time. And, and I've got to tell you, sometimes you think you know about God's grace, but I don't think you ever stop learning about God's grace. That, and well, what's grace? It's just that undeserved favor. And he just pours it out. It's very simple, very beautiful. And, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and, and set foot before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. The prison guard was saved. The enemy, the enemy of Paul was saved through this miracle that shook the entire town, right? You know what? I often dwell on this. You read, an, you read an account like this in the book of Acts. You read it in the gospel. 
And, and there's always that question that lingers out there. And the question is, what separates Christianity from the other million religions out there? I don't know if you've ever gotten that one. Well, why, why would I believe in the Bible when there's so many different religious texts out there? Why would I believe in Jesus when there's a million different religions out there? You know, it's unique for me because I wasn't, I wasn't raised in a Christian household, okay? So I didn't, I, was, I, didn't, I wasn't brought up just assuming it to be true. And there's a blessing in, in that, and there's a blessing when you're not brought up like that. And there's a million things I could talk about. But one of the things, just one of the things, is that when you read the Scripture, it, it sets itself apart in the, in the fact that it's so public and it's so verifiable. Let me give you an example. You read, show me another religious text. And, I, and nearly all of them, I will say all of them, they were done in a private dream or they were done in front of a very specific crowd of people that would testify to it or they were done, you know, on top of a mountain, something that cannot be verifiable. But when you say something so public like this, like prisoners were miraculously released, like the guy who, who didn't want to believe came to believe there was an earthquake, right? that took place. Those things, you, you, when you say things like this that are so public, they're either, you're either called a lunatic or it's true, but there's no in between. And, and, and then this is just one of many in Scripture. I mean, the things that, that are claimed, either nobody would believe them and the gospel wouldn't have a single chance at spreading anywhere because it's so public that you either know they're a liar or it's true, or it's true and it does spread miraculously. And people wonder, do you want to know why Christianity spread like it did? Because so much of it was verifiable. So many miracles took place. And, and Paul, I love in the book of Acts and other places, this might be a longer message, I'm rambling now, but in the, in the, in the book of Acts and other places, one thing I love about Paul is, is he's like, when he, when he goes and he shares the gospel, he said, if you don't believe me, you go back and talk to these towns yourselves, and they'll verify. And I, I just love how verifiable these things are. Okay, um, verse 35, and it was, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. So they slept on it overnight and said, maybe it wasn't a good idea. Let's let them go. Maybe the earthquake had something to do with it. I don't know. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have now thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. So the magistrates, the day before, they assumed that they were just Jews, and so they could treat them however they want. But you have to understand, Rome was very, very serious about Roman law, and Roman justice. If you were a citizen of Rome, you had privileges, and those privileges were not to be violated. All the way up to the top. I mean, the only person that could do it was Caesar himself, okay? But if you were a Roman citizen, and you were beaten like this, and thrown into prison without a trial, that was a very serious offense in Rome. And these magistrates are in danger of losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, or maybe even worse. So once they find out they're Roman citizens, Paul and Silas, they're, they're very much afraid of that. And Paul says, you, you did this openly in front of everyone. 
And so how easy is it going to be to prove that it happened? Very easy, right? Which makes them even more scared. And yet now you're going to try to sneak us out of the city? No way. We're not going to do it that way. You remember a few weeks ago, I preached on government in the book of Romans, right? It's a hard teaching. It's hard teaching for me. It's hard teaching for anybody who's anti-government. Um, in submission to government. But at the same time, we talked about the fact that is it wrong to exercise your right as citizens? I would say no. I would say no. Again, it all goes back to your intent. It all goes back to your intent. But here, if you just look at it at face value, they're exercising their rights as Roman citizens. Now, I don't think Paul says this or does this out of anger or pride. I think, again, his primary concern is for the glory of God. In other words, he's saying, you have shamed us publicly, right? You have, you know, and you're going to restore us publicly. You know, you're going to, you've shamed our reputation as a servant of God, and you're going to restore us as servants of God publicly. And that's going to be a good testimony for the entire city. I think that's one angle Paul took. Um, let's see here. I think another one might be that maybe, you know, he's thinking about future Christians in that city. And you know what's going to happen is these magistrates are going to think twice before they recklessly beat somebody for the sake of the gospel, you know, it could protect Christians in the future. I think the, the other fair question to ask here is, why didn't, why didn't they bring it up before they were beaten, right? In other words, when they were beaten, why didn't Paul and Silas say, hey, whoa, hold on, we're Roman citizens, you can't just do this. I think, I think one of the reasons, this is just speculation, I think one of the reasons is that they knew when they left there were going to be other Christians there that would be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And I think they didn't want the accusation of this. Well, it was easy for Paul and Silas because they're Roman citizens, so they, don't, they didn't get beat for the gospel, right? They wanted to be the example that when you suffer for Christ, it's always worth it, and he will always deliver you out of that persecution. Just... One of the thoughts I had, and then we'll finish up here. It says in verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So at this point, we know that more than Lydia... Other people have been saved. And Paul and Silas go to Lydia's house, which was like the home base for the church at this point. They encourage them, tell them all about their experience probably, and then they leave. And the church at Philippi is born. And so as we go through the letter of the Philippians in these coming weeks, we can remember this. I and mean, we can, I think it'll give us good context for that letter of Philippians. Amen? Okay. Well, let's pray. Then we'll sing one last song and dismiss this morning. Father, I come before you, Lord, and I thank you for this, this word that you have given us. I thank you that your word is powerful, Lord, that it speaks to our hearts and refreshes us, Lord. And I just ask that you help us, Lord, just understand more of who you are, understand more of your grace and your love and what you have called us to do in this life, Lord. We need you, and we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.